The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, solemnly dedicate myself to revealing how the world really works. And thank you, all of you, for being not only listeners to the show, but the way I visualize you, and as as you can imagine, it is far, far easier to address a passionate, interested, stimulating audience than it is to speak to a microphone. And yet, each week, that is what it is my privilege to do. And so, one of the ways that I try to bring the passion and vitality that I feel for the topics we discuss is by visualizing you over there. And that's not hard to do. On a physical level, I see each and every one of you. I see every man as a handsome, virile human being, and I see every woman as a beautiful woman. And on a spiritual level, I see you all as happy warriors. And those of you who've been long-time listeners of the show, you know that I, from time to time, used that phrasing before. When I say happy warrior, I mean people who are spiritually grounded in all that is life-affirming, cocooned in courage, and people whose commitment easily conquers the complacent and people whose tenacity triumphs over the crooks, creeps, clowns, and cranks, who, without even understanding the damage they do to our society, nonetheless are promoting an ultimately satanic abyss. But with you there and me here, there is hope. And I am recording this show just before the end of the year 2017, and so you will probably be hearing it once the new year has begun. And uh, it's hard to be doing the, the final show of 2017 without thinking just a little more deeply about what some of the things that uh, we've seen have happened and perhaps where it is that things are going. And so um, I want to predict that we will see more in 2018 of something you may not have expected. Oh, there'll, there'll be obviously the political developments, but you can predict those as well as I can. Well, almost. I mean, after all, it was me. It was I who predicted 
the triumph of Donald Trump at the end of 2016. And when did I predict that? At the beginning of 2016, while he was still yet just a part of... All right, enough of the Ayatollah Yusso bit here. Uh, but I must confess to deriving inner satisfaction. And only occasionally do I allow it to leak out to the consternation of my listeners, I am sure. So we'll we'll put that away. But uh, yeah, for the most part, the political predictions of 2018, yeah, you could do those as well as I can. Scientific and technological predictions, uh, yeah, you know, I, we we can we could sit around and chat about those as well. But I want to speak about the more spiritual predictions. I want to speak about what I see as the, well, I'm going to give it a grandiose term. It's a, it's a term I, I used uh, for the first time back in the early 90s when I was working on my book, America's Real War. And uh, the term is the death of materialism. I think we are moving towards that. Will we actually see that happen in 2018? I doubt it. But will it become much more evident to all than it is now? I suspect yes. I think we are going to begin to see spontaneous surgings of the human spirit. I think we're going to see increasing signs of moral and psychological disintegration of secularism. That's what I'm thinking that we're going to be seeing. What do I mean by the spiritual? Well, let me clarify that term because I'm going to be using it uh, repeatedly during the course of today's show. And that is that um, spiritual is not equivalent to religious. I could say I am religious. And when I say that, it absolutely doesn't mean that I am better than you or anybody else. Do you know what it does mean? And of this I'm absolutely sure. When I say that I, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, am a religious man, what I mean by that is that I am a far, far better person than I would be were I not religious. I do believe that the rituals, the rules, and the restraints of religion make me a more disciplined person, a more focused person, and yes, a person more aware of the spiritual. I can certainly say that I am a religious man, but uh, I've often heard people say, and many people who write to me, uh, whether on Facebook or on our website at rabbidaniellappin.com, uh, often use the phrase, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. And I don't think that that is the correct usage of the term. I can say I am religious, and then the next question which needs to be answered is, and what religion would that be? Right? So a person says, I am a religious, well, what? Muslim? Jew? Latter-day Saint? Catholic, you know, who depends, right? Whatever it is. But if somebody says, I am spiritual, like what? I'm a spiritual man. What does that mean? 
I think what people who write that actually mean is that I am a spiritually aware person, right? You can't say I'm a gravity person, but you can say I'm a gravity aware person. Now, that's not a particularly good example because after all, you know, any person who gets out of bed in the morning and stands up and feels their weight coming onto their legs knows what gravity is. Almost everybody is, is gravitationally aware, right? But you can't say I'm a gravity person. I'm a gravity aware person. can't say I'm a spiritual person. You can say I'm a spiritually aware person. And what is it exactly uh, that you are aware of? I have to talk about that. And so perhaps before we go any further, uh, just a moment or two on definitions. It's very simple, very straightforward. And uh, I think it'll, it'll make where we have to go during today's show a lot uh, quicker, a lot easier to work with. So um, let's first of all look at the opposite of uh, spiritual. The opposite of spiritual is physical or material. You can say materialistic, that's also fine, although it sort of sometimes has sociological implication. Oh, she's a very materialistic girl. And uh, which, by the way, I think women should be. That's another discussion. You've heard me speak about it on previous shows. But uh, material or physical is the opposite of spiritual. So what is material or physical? It's very simple. This one is not hard at all. Anything which can be measured in a laboratory. Anything that has weight, mass, anything that has length, dimensions, uh, anything that, uh, that has temperature, all of these things um, are, are physical and material things. Spiritual, spiritual are things that cannot be measured in a lab. Uh, music, by the way, is spiritual. What can be measured in a lab is just the sound. But there is no lab instrument which will tell you whether a particular arrangement of sounds will make a human being want to tap his or her feet, make them want to get up and dance, or make them sad and uh, melancholy. There is no instrument in any laboratory in the world that can do that. That is spiritual magic that occurs within the human mind, within the human heart, within the human soul is perhaps the best term. And so things that are uh, physical or material can be measured. A saxophone or a violin are physical. You can weigh them, you can measure them, you can even, uh, you can even measure the sounds they make. But the music they make, well, that's something else. That's spiritual. The tune is spiritual. The piano is physical. The, uh, one of the closest analogies which I've always used is the analogy of computer hardware and computer software. And one of the rules, uh, there, there are a number of rules about uh, spiritual and physical. I'm not going to go into them all now, but one of the rules is that uh, the, um, the, the, the spiritual cannot be destroyed. The physical does. And so obviously, uh, if, I, um, if I drop a disk on which an expensive piece of software which I purchased just arrived, I drop it in the toaster by accident or out of malice, um, it will turn into a, uh, a, a cr- little piece of burnt plastic. 
what happens then? Well, I call up the software manufacturer and I say, I'm very sorry, I've destroyed the software. They say, do you have the serial number? And I say, I think I do. They say, well, never mind, give us your address and the last four digits of your credit card. We'll find your order. Oh, yeah, here you are. Okay, fine. Uh, no problem. We'll send you another uh, disk. Don't worry about it. And I say, well, is there a charge? They say, no. I said, nothing at all. They say, well, you know, I mean, the disk costs us seven cents. It's, it's not worth it. Don't worry about it. We'll just send it to you. And so I prove that the spiritual cannot be destroyed. Well, happy with this, I then drop my uh, expensive laptop into the lake, and I call up, and I say, hi, I can give you my serial number. Uh, I've destroyed my laptop, hoping you can send me another one. And they say, no problem. Rabbi Lappin, just go ahead and send us $3,000, and we'll be happy to send you another laptop. This is not a problem. And I say, but wait a second. When I destroyed my software, I got a free copy. And they say, yes, and you, of all people, should know the difference between spiritual and physical. The physical body, obviously, that dies. Ultimately, it can and will. The spiritual impossible. The spiritual cannot die. Uh, that is a general rule. The composer of a tune may die. The tune he created can live forever because tunes are spiritual. People are physical. Okay, so that is uh, an understanding that when we use the word spiritual, we are speaking about things that cannot be measured in the laboratory of the physical world in any way at all. And when we come back, uh, I'm going to explain uh, how the two interact and the importance of the spiritual. Now, one of the things that uh, I want to mention as well is that in the Lord's language, in Hebrew, what distinguishes it from all other languages is that it behaves more like mathematics than like any language. In other words, there are rules. So, for instance, if I were to teach somebody the rules of addition and I was to teach the rules of subtraction, I could then say to a person, look, if uh, I have three apples and somebody gave me two apples, could you tell me the number of apples I have left? And the person would use the principles I had previously taught and say, yes, you have five apples. Now, in English or any other language for that matter, there are no, oh, there are rules of grammar, obviously, but in many ways they're arbitrary and they change uh, generation by generation. But uh, what I mean to say there are no rules is that if, for instance, the word car is taught to a foreigner and he's told it's a wheeled vehicle and the word pet is taught, a domesticated animal that lives in the house in sheer luxury. Uh, and then you say, good, now we're going to show you a word carpet. Could you tell us what it means? The answer is no, because a carpet has absolutely nothing to do with either a car or a pet. However, in Hebrew, that would not be the case. In Hebrew, words do reveal their meaning, and there are about 12 fundamental principles by which you can interpret the meaning of a word. And since I am speaking the truth during today's show, when I'm going to be discussing spirituality, I'm speaking of truth, uh, it's interesting to note 
that the Hebrew word for truth absolutely reveals itself. So you don't have to have ever encountered the word before. But if you know the rules, and by the way, I, I tested this with a brilliant Los Angeles um, head of an accounting company. He started his own company with a specialty in real estate. Uh, his name is a known name. And um, he used to uh, study some Torah with me. And he, he was not an observant Jew in any way. I, I wouldn't even say that he was a religious Jew, but he was intrigued. And uh, I, I gave him the rules, and then I said, okay, now you should be able to tell me what the Hebrew word for truth is, which he did. And he said, well, you know, that could be a coincidence. I said, well, what would be your best way of testing of whether it's a coincidence? He said, well, if the opposite of truth, falsehood, operated by the same rules, I'd be pretty amazed. And I said, well, what would you predict? According to these rules, what would you predict is the... Anyway, the whole story I tell in detail um, in a book called Buried Treasure. And in the 22nd chapter of Buried Treasure, I, um, I call the chapter Mr. Silverberg's Word Puzzle. And I tell the whole story of what I'm just telling you. Uh, the book is called Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language. And uh, it actually has an introduction from Pastor John Hagee, who's a friend. And uh, the book is an absolute delight in terms of seeing an arguable and compelling insights into life principles timeless truths that impact our lives. And uh, you see that in the book Buried Treasure. So read more about it at um, my website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, you can read about the book. And if it's something you like, here's an idea. You don't have to get it at my website. Go ahead and get it on Kindle. Just scoot over to Amazon. Look up Buried Treasure, right, by Rabbi Daniel Lappin. It's actually by Susan and me. And uh, there you will find you can download it to your Kindle. And as I mentioned last week, I was a skeptic of Kindle for, for quite a while, a couple of years. But I, I recently surrendered, and, and I'm very delighted because I do find that there are certain times where it is better than anything else. I'll give you one example. I generally tend to read later at night after Susan wants to go to sleep. She's very light-sensitive. And so if I read by means of a light, the light that spreads out into the room disturbs her. When I read uh, from my Kindle with the, uh, uh, I can even flip the, the colors so that it's white on black instead of black on white, which sheds even less light into the room, no problem at all. So that's just one instance where I'm finding that Kindle really works very nicely indeed for me. Anyway, the book can be downloaded instantly to Kindle. I think you'll enjoy it. And uh, apart from anything else, uh, a lot of people this year found it to be a fabulous gift for Hanukkah and for Christmas. Uh, and for New Year, for that matter. Okay, at any rate, uh, we'll take a quick break and then uh, off, give you a chance to visit RabbiDanielLappin.com. And then after that, we'll be right back. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and Retirement Curveball is a book by a finance expert that I respect 
Dr. Tom McPhee. Whether you are thinking about retirement, are already retired, or have never given the big R even a thought, now is the time to welcome the contents of this book into your mind. The book is filled with compelling aha moments and will motivate you to make some highly effective changes in how you manage your money and your life. I know Dr. Tom McPhee and his terrific book, Retirement Curveball, and I do recommend it. Get the book at retirementcurveball.com or on Amazon. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. We're back, everybody, and thank you again for being part of the show. Especially thank you for uh, the role that uh, each of you plays in helping to promote the show and get it out around there, which, after all, is ultimately the, the only measure of the success of a show of this kind uh, are the number of the listens, the number of downloads. So I do measure them, as others do as well, and I thank those of you who help to put those numbers in the very respectable zones they occupy at the present. So... Uh, talking about the death of materialism and the significance of the spiritual. I started off by defining the spiritual. Moving on, I want to explore for just a moment the aspects of life that are physical and the aspects of life that are spiritual. More to the point, could we really live without the spiritual aspects of life? We probably could on, on a very basic, materialistic level. But a good part of the joy of life, wait a moment, joy, physical or spiritual? <laughs> I think you know the answer, right? A good part of the joy of life flows directly from the spiritual. Love affection, appreciation, admiration, the esteem of others, those are some of the things. The connections we make with one another, they are at their heart all spiritual. Um, many people make the mistake, and it's an easy one to make, that uh, sexual connection is just physical. And I think that most people with any experience in life at all know that there is a huge difference between a sexual connection that embodies a spiritual connection as opposed to a sexual connection with nothing at all. I should mention perhaps only briefly at this point that uh, money is a spiritual phenomenon. And that is something I cover very extensively in my book, Thou Shall Prosper, The Ten Commandments for Making Money. The reason I mention it is because money is one of the profound ways in which we connect with people. It's a real connection. And people sometimes have asked me when I, I do programs on money and marriage, which is the topic of the book I'm currently finishing off, is uh, why is it in this day and age, why is it 
that with sex apparently so readily available, with the hookup culture being more prevalent on the university campus than Shakespeare is, why would anybody patronize a prostitute? Right? After all, right? I mean, why? It would seem to make absolutely no sense. And this is something, uh, there was uh, that actress, Elizabeth Hurley, who uh, was, was and is a beautiful woman. She's, she's over 50 now, and she's still a beautiful woman, a very beautiful woman. So back in 1995, um, she must have been staggering. And at that time, she was married to uh, that British actor I was talking about, um, Hugh Grant. And in the summer of 95, Hugh Grant gets arrested with a prostitute in Hollywood. And, you know, people used to ask me at the time, uh, you know, why? How, how is that possible? How does that make sense? And uh, there, there are two answers. Uh, one of them is uh, the connection that comes through money. In other words, you know, no one else knows what goes on in someone else's marriage. And if there was some estrangement, if there was a sense of alienation, if he was feeling um, somehow looked down upon by her for any number of reasons, um, a relation, physical relationship with her would have not been fully satisfying because the spiritual connection wasn't there. So you say, what, and there was more spiritual connection with a total stranger and a prostitute? Oddly enough, yes. And I know this is a difficult thing to wrap one's head around, but, uh, but dwell on it for, for a little while. And yes, uh, the transfer of money actually creates a relationship. Yes, it does. It does make a difference. And that relationship makes it easier. The same thing was asked of me at the time with Elliot Spitzer who was married to, at the time, again, a, a lovely-looking woman. Certainly, you wouldn't have thought that he needed to be um, the butt of national jokes by, uh, as a result of being caught with a, a long-term uh, relationship with prostitutes. Again, uh, if he was feeling uh, looked down upon by her for any number of a variety of reasons, uh, that damages dramatically the connection between husband and wife, and at that point, the relationship with a prostitute is more satisfying because there actually is more of a spiritual connection with the prostitute than there is with the wife who is looking down at him, from whom he feels spiritually estranged. She feels estranged from him. Look, I, I know this is a tough thing, right? Uh, guess what? Do you know what Rabbi Daniel Appen said on the show this week? He said that some men have a closer relationship with prostitutes than with their wives. And um, anyone who hears that, particularly a woman who hears that, is, is going to roll her eyes and uh, be completely dismissive of such an absurd idea. But um, in the context in which I describe it, it's not at all an absurd idea. And what is more, it explains the weird reality <laughs> of the continuing existence of the oldest profession. You would have thought that there'd be no room for it in today's market. And uh, one of the uh, the 
things I did with a group of, uh, of Torah students of mine, men only, by the way. Uh, one night I took a few of them uh, on a drive, and I took them up to Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, and I, had, I was teaching some of this material, and I wanted them to see that their presumption that the only people patronizing prostitutes are poor, ugly-looking guys, you know, who are socially inept, and therefore they can't possibly win a, win a woman on their own. Uh, those must be the only guys left in the world patronizing prostitutes. Not true at all. And they were shocked where we parked for a while, and yes... <laughs> We were approached and solicited numerous times because we parked in the precise location I needed. Uh, I wanted them to see exactly who was arranging assignations with these uh, ladies of the profession. And uh, they were shocked to find my words borne out that indeed uh, these were perfectly normal-looking guys in nice cars, certainly guys you would have thought would have absolutely no trouble picking up a woman at a bar. And the answer is that this is a more satisfactory relationship for thoughtful and deeper guys. I know this sounds counterintuitive, but hear my words. I wouldn't lie to you. Uh, because of that financial connection, the physical relationship is more satisfying than it would be with a um, something completely meaningless, a drunken encounter, the result of some bar chit-chat. And uh, many thoughtful and, and deeper men feel this very realistically. Okay, so I hope, I hope that makes some sense. So when I say that connection is spiritual, uh, I hope that sort of helps clarify the whole uh, scenario. Uh, but at any rate, what we're certainly talking about is the importance that the spiritual plays in our lives. Yes, we obviously have physical needs, but they are limited pretty much to uh, food and water and, and shelter, right? Maintaining our uh, core body temperature. That's about it. How about nice clothing, label clothing? What's that? Is that physical or spiritual? Entirely spiritual. As a matter of fact, one of the most spiritual of all industries is the fashion industry. Uh, the entire analysis of why it is that uh, for a smart do, a, uh, a, a fancy event, men all look like each other for the most part, all dressed in black tuxedos, whereas every woman looks different in a resplendent, colorful outlook, uh, exactly the opposite of the animal world, isn't it? Where in animals, it's the male that's more colorful and resplendent and the female that is usually more drab. Not at all like that with human beings. All of, of clothing has to do with human dignity. And that is a spiritual factor. So you can figure this all out for yourself. I don't need to spend any more time on this. Uh, but the basic thing to think about, and maybe even to, to discuss when, when you have time at the dinner table with family or with friends, um, are to try and analyze which of the great joys of life depend on the spiritual and which depend on the physical. That is all by way of explaining why 
it is so important to recognize the reality of the spiritual. I encourage you as always, uh, please visit the website and uh, if there is anything there that can enhance your life, well then purchasing it enhances mine too. And uh, you'll visit it at rabbidaniellappin.com. Right now, uh, there is a special on our book, Buried Treasure, Secrets for Living from the Lord's Language. And it's laid out in six sections, relationships and marriage, family and children, community and work, growth and success, ideas, and spiritual life. And in spiritual life, uh, chapter 26, we called the source of spiritual energy. And uh, what's interesting about that is that the Hebrew word for a blessing is the same as the Hebrew word for knee. As, by the way, in English, when we kneel in prayer, we are again using that knee. The significance of the knee in spiritual awareness and spiritual connection, really? Well, as a matter of fact, yes, that's absolutely right. And uh, you can read more about the book at rabbidaniellappin.com. And you can uh, get it either right there if you want it in book form. It can be sent to you. Or if you'd like to download it at Kindle, uh, hop over to Amazon and do that over there. Anyways, uh, it's a great book. It's a, it's a great read. It's a, it's a terrific thing to have on hand. Maybe, you know, read a little bit before you go to sleep at night. It's, it's just it's nice to read something that is true substantive, real, and spiritual. That's what uh, Buried Treasure is all about. Meanwhile, what I'm all about is solving for you the enigmas of living in a world where so much changes, and all we can do is cling steadfastly to those things that never change. And with more on spirituality which never changes. I'll be back in just a moment. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. We're back, everybody. It's the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, I appreciate your participation very much indeed. People sometimes ask me that, you know, if, if a spirituality and awareness of spiritual reality is so important, and it is, it's obviously a vital part of life, you know, how is it that today it is apparently in retreat? You almost label yourself a primitive uneducated if you confess to being spiritually sensitive certainly if you confess to being religious uh, the war against religion in general the judeo-christian uh, biblically based faiths in particular and christianity even more than that in other words n you know in the popular culture nobody attacks islam oh no islam is a wonderful noble religion they treat with considerable respect 
you know, the, the Book of Mormon, which I think the LDS Church was incredibly smart about not making an issue of, but it was, you know, it was, it, it was a, a very competent mocking of the Mormon Church. I always feel that uh, not a great deal of courage was needed to uh, write and produce that play on Broadway. Uh, let them do something called the Book of the Koran, the Book of Muhammad, uh, the Book of Islam. Let them do a mocking and ridiculing play on Broadway on that topic, and I would be impressed. Then I would say, you know what? These artists are relevant to our world today. But an artist who attacks Christianity is quite irrelevant to the world today. It takes zero bravery or courage to do that because all you're going to get are warm and enthusiastic and admiring pats on the back from all the people that actually matter in your life. So, yes, indeed, uh, that, that's what happens over there. But, um, yeah, look, the, the thing is that uh, there is a reason that there was this big change and before I explain that, I'll also explain that, uh, you know, when, when people sometimes say to me, how come ancient Jewish wisdom is so effective? How is it so accurate? How is it that the permanent principles you teach and write about, how is it that these timeless truths are real? You know, my, my life changed when I started adopting your principles on finance. My life changed when my wife and I started adopting ancient Jewish wisdom principles in our marriage. Um, you know, why do those work better than the latest idea from the newest issue of some psychology magazine? And the, the most basic answer to that is that so much of what really matters in life is spiritual more than just physical that any system which ignores the spiritual aspect has to be wrong. It's going to be inaccurate a good part of the time, if not all the time. And one of the values of ancient Jewish wisdom is it fully recognizes the role of the spiritual. There is a verse in the book of Psalms which says, the beginning of all wisdom is the fear of God. And by the way, a similar verse appears in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, but in Psalms chapter 111, verse 10, uh, it says, Reshit Chochmah, Yirat Adonai. And that's what it sounds like in the Hebrew. The reason I told you the Hebrew is, is not because I think you already know Hebrew, even though that may be on the program down the road a bit. But uh, for now, uh, I wanted you just to hear the cadence of the words. Reshit chokhmah, yirat Adonai. The beginning of all wisdom is the fear of God. Accepting, my friends, that it isn't the fear you see, the Hebrew word there that I just read to you, yirat, actually means the seeing of God. Now, the King James translation in 1611 uh, was the first to translate. In There were other English translations before that, but that was the first translation to translate that word from that in Hebrew means sight into fear. The, the Hebrew meaning, obviously, is that if you can see God, then obviously you're going to fear him, right? Um, I've told you the story of uh, my brother and I getting out of the car 
in a game park in South Africa and taking a picture in front of a sign that says, remain in your car, the animals can be dangerous. <laughs> and so obviously as uh, young boys, uh, we couldn't think of anything more important than to actually jump out of the car. And uh, before our parents could even react in anger, uh, we took pictures of each other standing in front of the sign, and I still have the picture. The thing that's so uh, fascinating about it is, <laughs> honest to goodness, in the background in the picture, uh, there actually is a lion <laughs> sitting there. <laughs> so I usually tell the story to, to speak about the amazing camouflage that animals do um, do enjoy in the natural wild. But in this case, uh, no, it's, um, it, it's simply, <laughs> you can be quite sure that had we seen the lion, we absolutely wouldn't have got out of the car. Now, we knew there were lions around there. We can read the sign. We knew that. But we just didn't think there was any one lion particularly close. In other words, seeing and fearing um, have a certain connection. You're more likely to fear something you see. Uh, so the actual word the, the, used in that verse, Psalms 111, verse 10, uh, the beginning of all wisdom is the seeing of God. The fear is a, is a follow-up from that. If you can actually see the reality of God, then that changes your behavior. You know, when earlier in the show, I said that a religious Daniel Lappin is not better than any other person on the planet, but a religious Daniel Lappin is a whole lot better than a non-religious Daniel Lappin would have been. And you can trust me on that. And so um, the, uh, the, the seeing of God, in other words, when you actually see spiritual reality, and obviously the most powerful manifestation of spiritual reality is God, when you really see that, you've got that clear, well then obviously that does shape so much else in your life. That is one of the exciting aspects of spiritual reality. I'm quite certain that when people sometimes say to me, look, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual, even though uh, I know what they really mean, uh, one thing they definitely do not mean is, and I see God. When people use the word spiritual rather than religious, many times what they're actually saying is, I'm not interested in God, I don't want that part of reality in my life, but I'm sort of uh, somewhat aware that things that I cannot see or feel or touch uh, do exist and, and are significant in the world. That's kind of what people tend to mean. And so, uh, yeah. Uh, there was a time when there was a great deal more familiarity, a more understanding of these things. What changed? Well, to a large extent, three people. And, you know, one day I'd probably want to do an entire show on these three people, their interaction with one another's ideas and the changes they brought about to the modern world in which uh, we live today. The three people are Charles Darwin, um, uh, Karl Marx, and Sigmund Freud. And these guys were all uh, creative uh, towards the uh, end of the 19th century. And so when the 1900s came, the world was already on track for a major change. Prior to that point, spiritual reality was much more real. 
you know, you can read, you can read English literature, read American documents from the 1600s and the 1700s. One of my favorites is the history of the Plymouth Plantation by the second governor of the Plymouth Colony called William Bradford. And I, I've mentioned in the past that um, the beginning of it is actually in Hebrew, the manuscript in his own handwriting is pretty amazing. But, you know, you read that material and an awareness of God and spiritual reality just leaps off the pages. It's taken for granted. It's not even an issue. And if you, uh, you know, you read uh, later documents and even, even uh, founding documents in, in which are enshrined all of, of American history, uh, they contain awareness of spiritual reality. Uh, up until, you know, shall we say, 1900, the, the awareness was with everybody. Between then and 1960, it was in slow but steady decline. And as uh, you've heard me say in the past, by about 1962, that was the point at which it essentially became eviscerated. But uh, Charles Darwin, of course, gave people the opportunity to see themselves as nothing but animals, you know, sophisticated animals, animals that run faster than some animals and slower than others, animals that have more hair than some, less than others, but essentially humans as uh, one more element on the spectrum of animal life. Obviously, foundational to biblical belief is uh, the idea found in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, which is that there is all of creation, and then there is the human being, completely separate and distinct. And so Darwin gave, although, by the way, that was far from his intention and probably not even his own personal belief, Darwin gave people that opportunity to say, yeah, I guess we really are just part of the evolutionary progress. We're just part of that game. Uh, Marx, for his part, uh, viewed the world in totally materialistic terms. Right, even called it, they called it the materialistic dialectic, and, uh, and there was nothing but viewing us as animals, in which context, by the way, socialism makes perfect sense. If indeed we are animals, then it does make sense, and I've, I've discussed that extensively on other shows. And then uh, along came Freud, and, and let me tell you that uh, the, for the most part, um, when a Jew rejects God, he doesn't just become you know, a person who isn't particularly religious. Almost invariably, he becomes a secular activist. It's almost always true. There are exceptions. Right? There, there's a man called Herb London uh, who uh, even wrote something on the, the dangers of a secularized America, wrote a book, a terrific guy who has no such problem. But overwhelmingly, when, uh, when you think of some of the writers and intellectuals who were conservative or thought to be conservative and who nonetheless became virulent anti-Trumpers, a disproportionate number of them are Jewish. David Brooks, David Frum, William Crystal, and uh, a number of others. Considering that Jews make up only 1.4% roughly of the population, 
you will see how disproportionate that is. In general, when Jews are not religious, they have an almost irresistible tug towards the secular. It's the most amazing thing to see, and it's why I have such enormously high regard for Jews who are not religious, but at the same time have resisted the compulsion to be so aggressively secular. I give you that as by way of background to speak about the third member of uh, this triad, and that was, uh, in addition to Charles Darwin and Karl Marx, is, well, you know who's coming next, right? Uh, Sigmund Freud. That's right. Look, Sigmund Freud happily has largely been discredited in psychiatry today, um, which is not to say that everything he wrote is nonsense. I, I do think very highly of his 19 introductory lectures in uh, in, in psychoanalysis, I think I, I've certainly gained much from them. But um, but for the most part, he wrote many, many, many more words attacking religion than he ever did on psychiatry. It's it's amazing. Um, I'll tell you some of his books, and you know those of you into it will know them. Uh, Obsessive actions and religious practices. All right, and. Um, uh, and it was 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 uh, Sigmund Freud impacted by ideas of Darwin and Marx? Yes, of course, absolutely. There's no question about it. He was he was very very aware. Uh, they they were a little older than he was, but when they died, he was about thirty or so. You know, very much, particularly in those days, very much in the uh, in in the uh, in the essence of of his of his being uh, when uh, when. Um, um, uh, so anyway, so he wrote Obsessive Actions and Religious Practices. Then he wrote Totem and Taboo. I'm not going to tell you about the books. I mean, I'll do, they're just basically all intensely, and by the way, as time went by, increasingly anti-religious, anti-Jewish, anti-Christian. Um, uh, one of his best-known ones is called The Future of an Illusion. And by the way, these are so poorly written, so poorly argued, Compared to his 1919 introductory lectures, which was fantastic, uh, these, they're almost embarrassing. But you see, if you are anti-religious in the culture of the 20th and the 21st century, you can get away with anything. You can get away with anything. Um, the, uh, the future of an illusion was virulently anti-religious. Um, it was... It was so badly done that people call it a failure in religious criticism and that it set back the field of criticism of religion back decades because it was so bad. Uh, he wrote Civilization and Its Discontents, which again uh, was saying that uh, you know people have the silly need for religion. And then finally, it all uh, culminated with... Um, Moses and monotheism, right, which was directly uh, an attempt at destroying religion altogether. So uh, there, I mean, look, that's that's what these three guys, Darwin, Freud, and Marx, really did a great deal to remove spiritual awareness and respect for an understanding of spiritual reality. So, um, what happened? Well, that I think I probably have to tell you just as soon as we come back. 
um, the website rabbidaniellappin.com, rabbidaniellappin.com, and the resource that we are uh, putting on sale this week for listeners to this show is called Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language, and uh, it's made up of uh, 29 chapters, I believe, divided into six sections having to do with family, with friendship, with uh, finance, with, uh, uh, with ideas, with God, a lot of different things. But the nice thing is that each one is a relatively short read, and so it's the sort of thing you can pick up when you're feeling just in the, in the need of an uplift. Uh, you, have, you have a few minutes to spare. Uh, perhaps you, you have a stressful meeting coming up, and you just want to prepare for that. Uh, you will find a few chapters in this book, that any one of which will do the trick and put you just where you want to be. So uh, have a look at that at rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, after you've read it, tell me what you think. Uh, I, I know that we, we get a huge amount of fan mail on that particular book, and, and we appreciate it very much indeed, I can tell you. Okay, quick break. I, your rabbi, will be right back. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something, and progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. We're back. Your rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. And uh, thanks for being part of the show as we come into the home stretch. Look, um, in the uh, as a result of uh, Freud... Darwin and Marx, and those were not the only factors, by the way, but they were significant. Uh, you can watch the 1900s begin to unravel spiritually, and what you see is that thoughtful writers writing during the 20th century, particularly before 1960, right, because by 60 or 62, right, all of us could see what was going on. I mean, right, you know, people, I, I wasn't thoughtful um, or creative at all at that point but um but i'm sure had i been i would have been aware of what was going on by 1962 it was pretty obvious that the spiritual core of american society was collapsing but it wasn't just of american society it was of what we think of as western civilization and so you can actually read things, even, by the way, things that you might have thought are as sort of mundane as, as detective mystery thrillers. And if you read different authors during the, the 1900s, you will actually see that people are aware that something is missing, something is falling away. And what it is that, well, the beginning of wisdom, of all wisdom, is the seeing of God. When you stop seeing God, when you stop seeing spiritual reality in any way whatsoever, don't be surprised. If wisdom falls away, 
and it is replaced by uh, horrible mistakes. Listen to Dorothy Sayers. By the way, uh, for those of you who enjoy detective stories, she has a series of detective stories uh, featuring her hero, Lord Peter Whimsey. Now, again, the likelihood of you coming across these books today you know, in your local library or in general conversation, probably not high. And yet, um, I would mention it again. This isn't a sort of must read, but if you are already into mystery novels, why don't you get hold of Dorothy Sayers, that's S-A-Y-E-R-S, and read some Lord Peter Whimsey books. Tell me what you think. Will you do that? You know, go to my website, RabbiDanielLappin.com, after you've read a Lord Peter Whimsey book and uh, and send me a message there, would you? And, and say, you know, what did you waste my time for? I don't think you're going to say that. Uh, they're charming. But um, here's something that Dorothy says. Now, she died in 57, I think. So we're talking about something she would have written in the, uh, in the years preceding that. My guess, I don't have an exact date when she wrote this, but I'm thinking... And I, I just don't have the time to look it up right now. It's not important. But I, I would guess she wrote it uh, probably during or immediately after World War II. And here's what she wrote. Quote, Futility. She's saying what's changed, right? Things are changing in England. And, uh, and the values that she had grown up with, the values that were part of where she came from, right? She was born in the late 19th century. Um, the values she grew up with, well, they're, um, they're, they're falling away. And, and today, and she's talking about now 1950, right? So she writes, it's a sense of futility, lack of a living faith, the drift into loose morality, greedy consumption, financial irresponsibility, and uncontrolled bad temper, a self-opinionated and obstinate individualism, violence, sterility, and lack of reverence for life and property, the exploitation of sex, the debasing of language, the commercializing of religion, mass hysteria and spellbinding venality and string-pulling in public affairs, the fomenting of discord, the exploitation of the lowest and stupidest mass emotions. Come on, that's good. Couldn't she be talking about the streets of America today? Right? I mean, it's, it's really what it is. But she nailed it back then, probably around about 1950. Pretty amazing. Wouldn't you agree? That was Dorothy Sayers, the creator of the Lord Peter Whimsey mystery series. But uh, that was what was going on. And so, yes, at the heart of the decay, at the heart of the deterioration, as she calls it sterility. We could call it abortion today. But uh, you know, sterility is, is, is what it really is, uh, a, a veneration of sterility. And uh, all right, fine. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's pretty real. Um, and so I'm saying, yes, you know what? We've, we've come close to bottom on this uh, uh, attempt to extirpate spiritual reality from our lives. And by the way, without spiritual awareness, you can't possibly 
be correct about things because so many decisions, I mean, conversa conversations you have in business, negotiations in business, issues with your spouse, with your children, with your siblings, with your parents, so many of those things revolve around spiritual, not physical reality. So if you know nothing about spirituality, what chance do you have? Right? That's what the psalm means. The beginning of all wisdom is the seeing of God. If spiritual reality plays no role whatsoever in your life, you're lost because so much of the reality of life revolves around spiritual truths. Um, the Wall Street Journal, um, just today as it happens, uh, ran a story by a psychologist, as it happens, a Jewish psychologist, a religious Jewish psychologist. So naturally, it caught my eye. <clears throat> and uh, he says, uh, he, he says, I constantly get asked by patients um, asking the same question, can I speak to you about God? They want to discuss their problems, not in psychological terms, but in spiritual ones. He says, I guess the yarmulke on my head suggested I was an appropriate person to offer guidance. He says, I wasn't. Although I'm a committed Jew and I'm a clinical scientist, I'm not a theologian. I didn't have my supervisor's permission to speak to patients about their spiritual lives. He says, I don't think it's surprising that patients wanted to speak to me about God. Psychological science has consistently shown that spirituality can shape how someone thinks. A religion and spirituality have the ability to promote or damage mental health. A 2014 review of research into spirituality and mental health concluded this potential demands an increased awareness of religious matters by practitioners in the mental health field. Um, and then he goes on, and I like this, even though <clears throat> Sigmund Freud's work is largely discredited, and yes, he's right about that, his classification of religious belief as neurosis reflected a deep antipathy towards anything that hinted at the metaphysical. Metaphysical, folks, is a fancy word for spiritual. Patients, I'm going back to Dr. Rosmarin, patients who professed religious beliefs were viewed as ill or immature. That's Sigmund Freud, and absolutely correct. Having a spiritual perspective was considered a pathological problem to be targeted in the course of treatment. And by the way, you've often heard me speak about Carl Jung, who was a one-time colleague of Freud. Freud was a secular Jew and virulently hostile to biblical faith. Carl Jung was a Christian who was deeply aware of the significance of spiritual reality and the role that God plays in the cure. Sig um, Carl Jung, by the way, was very uh, significant in the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous, an organization which is not a government organization and can't be because of one of its requirements, which is, well, it's a masked and camouflaged acceptance or recognition of God's role. They, they mask it a little bit because they don't want to be classified as a religious organization, but uh, you'd have to be a blind immigrant from outer Mongolia uh, not to recognize that, uh, that as uh, Carl Jung recommended uh, that Alcoholics Anonymous be spiritually based. The reason he said that was he said that alcoholism uh, is essentially a spiritual want. You know, it becomes a physical addiction later on. But to begin with, uh, we turn to alcohol to overcome spiritual pain. He says this is one of the reasons that the old Latin word for alcohol was spiritus. 
and we still speak of spirits, right? When, when, when we, uh, wine and spirits, meaning uh, alcohol, because it's a recognition of the spiritual pain that people turn to alcohol to solve. Anyway, that was, um, so, um, uh, let me see if there's anything else in this article I need to tell you about. Whether the effects of spirituality, of patient response has been very favorable. You know, he started a program to be spiritually aware in psychological treatment. Um, I'm not sure the field of psychiatry as a whole is ready to evolve towards a more spiritually open ethos, but for now I'm grateful to have the permission to speak about a God with my patients and even a professional duty to do so. Um, the, um, the, 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 the other thing I wanted to tell you about is this. He has one more thing that I wanted to tell you. I'm sorry, I should have marked it in advance. Forgive me. But um, here it is. Psychiatrists remain the least religious of all physicians. Clinicians tend to disregard spirituality in the provision of services. I was taught in graduate school to leave God at the threshold of the therapy room. Uh, you know why? Still a lingering legacy of, of Sigmund Freud. Although he's discredited, the intense and virulent loathing of religion that comes through in all his writing, unfortunately, has lingered in the psychiatric profession. And he's exactly right. The least religious of all doctors are psychiatrists and, um, the, uh, and, and the most hostile to faith are psychiatrists. Very, very interesting. Uh, he, he says, by the way, that in his view, ignoring spirituality is a form of malpractice. For a clinician to ignore a spirituality is really dangerous. You've got to be uh, culturally sensitive, etc., etc. But um, anyway, it's, it's kind of important and uh, I think fairly valuable. All right, quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to finish off by answering the question of where is heaven? You want to know where heaven is? Right? A lot of people have, have asked me, you know, amidst discussions of whether Jews are going to heaven or not or whatever, where is heaven anyway? Well, I'll be providing the answer in just a few moments. But first, the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, it's a place where you can make sure you're on my mailing list. It's a place where you can send me an email. It's a place where you can uh, also um, go ahead and take a look at the resource we are encouraging you to look at this week and to purchase. It's called Buried Treasure, Secrets for Living from the Lord's Language. And uh, it's, it's beautiful in the sense that it's divided up into just under 30 chapters, 29 chapters. It's divided into six sections, relationships and marriage, family and children, community and work, growth and success, ideas and spiritual life. And here's the best part of it. Uh, each one of those 29 chapters is a standalone chapter. You don't have to read the whole book. You don't have to remember where you got up to. You can pick it up, flip through the contents, choose something which you feel talks to you at the moment. Yes, a spiritual reality. That's right. Uh, and just read it. It's called Buried Treasure. And look for it on my website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Back with you in just a moment. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. 
The Morning Blaze with Doc Thompson. No, no, but I would have my ears lasered. Because the hair growing in? Yes, I mean, what the hell is that about? It falls Chris Cruz uh, has had waxing and lasering and all of this. I don't think that, that shocks you guys. No. And by has, I, I mean had, is has, <laughs> and he has on a regular tomorrow. basis. <laughs> I have Chris had, Cruz has designs. I have had <laughs> laser hair removal on the back of my and neck. He's got the Puerto Rican flag shaped somewhere. The Morning Blaze, weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Okay, welcome back everybody. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, obviously. And uh, I said I was going to tell you where heaven is. And uh, I, I, I should really title this segment, A Conquest of Complexity. But uh, I won't be so grandiose. And instead, I'll tell you about a book I first read as a teenager and uh, which I have subsequently gone back to. Oh, I I can't begin to tell you how often. Um, The book was written, and again, it's a 19th century book. It was written in the 1800s, I'm pretty sure, or else early 1900s, by a Christian theologian, uh, an educator. He was... uh, Uh, by all accounts, a a most remarkable man. And uh, the name of his book was Flatland, A Romance of Many Dimensions. And uh, it's, it's, again, it's, it's a wonderful book. And what he does there is he describes an entire imaginary world of only two dimensions, but he actually makes it leap to life. So let me give you an example of of what I mean. <clears throat> if you lower your eye to the at the edge of your table to the level of your table surface and you look across the table surface you are now looking at a two-dimensional surface. It has length and breadth but we're disregarding the height. Now if somebody would drop a dime onto that table to you, looking at the edge of the table, the dime just looks like a line, right? Because you're not aware of any other dimensions to it. And so he, uh, Edwin Abbott postulates uh, a whole civilization living in flatland where there isn't such a thing as three dimensions. The world is two dimensions, right? That's what it is. And... Um, and, and the people who live there have no consciousness of anything above or below their two-dimensional world. And it, it's really interesting. Uh, I mean, if, you know, imagine a, uh, somebody dropping a basketball down towards flatland, or if you like, towards your table surface. Because you are confining your vision only to the surface of the table, you're not aware that there is a big basketball dropping down towards the table. You're totally unaware of it until the point of impact. And at that point, you're only aware of the point at which it strikes, if you're living in flatland. Now, if you could imagine that basketball sort of passing through your world, you also wouldn't be aware of what's happening. All you'd sense is a point disturbance in your world, which would then grow like a concentric circle, just getting bigger and bigger, until the center point, the equator of the basketball, passes through your surface, and then would start contracting again, until finally it just becomes a point and then vanishes. Uh, This world, a flatland, 
is really very interesting. Now, obviously, um, Reverend Abbott is drawing a parallel, which is so helpful. He's drawing a parallel that shows that we live very comfortably in what we think is our three-dimensional world of length and breadth and height. And it's really would be, it would be disturbing. It would invoke cognitive dissonance of a serious nature by letting us know that there's actually a fourth and maybe a fifth dimension. As a matter of fact, when we start learning mechanics and physics and quantum mechanics, and we become aware that time is actually the fourth dimension. Wow. And so now, if you want to understand why you don't bump into yourself when you revisit a shop that you were at last week, it's because although the, the length and breadth, all the coordinate dimensions are the same, latitude, longitude, height, everything is the same as two weeks ago, but time has changed. Otherwise, you'd bump into yourself. Anyway, that's, that's perhaps not conquering complexity, but adding to it. But um, it was the beginning of the 1900s with Albert Einstein where we saw the idea of time as the fourth dimension. And by the way, I'm not sure that in the early 1900s, Albert Einstein's theory of relativity, misunderstood by many, but certainly, I think, contributed to the idea that many people thought that if, the, if Einstein introduces a theory of relativity, then everything is relative, even morality. And uh, I'm indebted for that idea to the historian um, Paul Johnson, in a book he wrote about the 20th century called Modern Times. Terrific, terrific book. But um, uh, there it is. So the, the parallel is for us to understand that we think we're living in, at most, a four-dimensional world. Length, breadth, height, and time. And that should cover everything. How disturbing it would be to discover that there might be a fifth dimension, right? The spiritual but it's certainly, these things are not intuitive. Length, breadth, and height are intuitive, right? Uh, a baby grows up with an intuitive understanding of uh, length, breadth, height, um, even weight. But when it comes to time, time is not intuitive. Let me give you another example. My dog is in his own world, but his world is bounded by his relationship with me and my friends and my family. The FedEx delivery guy is a stranger and naturally has to be barked at. Now, my dog certainly knows when I'm home and he knows when I'm away. When I walk out the door, his head hangs down, and when I return home again, he wags his tail in glee, or at least it looks like glee to me. Does my dog care whether I returned home from a happy family event? or whether I've returned home from some stressful business meeting. Not only doesn't he care, but he wouldn't even be aware that there are any specific destinations in my movements when I walk out of the door. For him, I'm either home or gone. If I try to tell my dog that I was enjoying the weather in Miami, or that I had a painful session at the gym, I'm wasting my time. That's not what my dog's for. In every way, he is an admirable animal, but he has no way at all of relating to those places. 
lifetime. That is a little bit of what it's like being a human being who hasn't been educated either to the relativity theory and the role of time or apropos of today's conversation a human being living in a world of if you like three or four dimensions and not being educated to be aware of the fifth dimension the spiritual think about um i have a physicist friend in seattle an absolutely brilliant wonderful man and when he and his wife gather at our home for a shabbat dinner the conversation revolves around concepts like the flexibility of time and the square root of minus one. Now, my young daughter, she knows that when you're late, you're late. Time doesn't stretch. She knows that. But here's the problem. Time does stretch. If you're traveling close to the speed of light, time stretches quite a lot. She also knows, that's my young daughter, that there's no such thing as the square root of a minus number, right? You can say, what is the square root of 4? 2, because 2 times 2 is 4. What's the square root of 9? 3. 3 times 3 is 9. Now, what do I have to multiply it by itself to get minus 4? Well, if I multiply minus 2 by minus 2, I'll get plus 4. So there is no such thing as the square root of a minus number. And so she knows that there's no such thing as the square root of a minus number. There is. That's the problem. The square root of minus one is so relevant that it even has a name. We call it I. These concepts are very real. But you see, they are only real to those who have invested the time and the effort into gaining understanding of these dimensions. Do you follow what I'm saying? Now, my dog couldn't. Right? My dog couldn't learn about my destinations and right because he's a dog. But a human being can. And if a human being wants to understand spiritual reality, it's not innate, like length and breadth and temperature and height. No, you have to learn about it. It's much more like quantum mechanics or nuclear physics. It's accessible to every one of us. But it will take time and energy and effort. There's no question about it. Um, I will tell you this, that if my young daughter asked my physicist friend, Brian, she said, Brian, could you explain to me, please, like a, the square root of minus one? I didn't know there's such a thing as the square root of a minus number. Can you tell me how time stretches? Go on, tell me about it. I'm, I'm, I'm clever. I know exactly what Brian would say. He would gently demur. And he would tell her that he'd be delighted to help her grasp these things, but that he'd first need to teach her calculus and college-level physics. And at that point, my daughter would probably say, okay, thanks, but no thanks, it's just not that important. But it really is that important. Just as we all have physical limitations, we all have intellectual limitations, right? We all recognize that um, if you strap wings onto somebody, there's no way he's going to fly. It's not going to happen. If you ask somebody to jump over a two-story building unaided with no jetpack, no, not going to happen. You can jump, you can do a high jump to a certain height, but there are strict physical limitations beyond which the human being cannot go. Now, I know that people used to think before 1954 that uh, running a four-minute mile was outside a human uh, human's ability. All right, but it wasn't. 
but if somebody asked me, uh, do you think any time a human being will run a one-minute mile, I can assure you that's not going to happen. Um, because the the human body and the metabolism and the energy output needed for that kind of feat is just not something the human body can accomplish. If you ask me whether a human being will ever be able to lift a Sherman army tank onto his shoulders and carry it through a, through a bog, I'll tell you no. It's, no matter how much oatmeal he eats, it's not going to happen. So in the same way we have to recognize we have spiritual limitations now in the same way you can an intellectual i should say as well now in the same way that you can obviously increase your physical abilities significantly still with a limit at the end but you certainly can increase your physical limitations uh, you can also increase your spiritual greatly with the equivalent of exercise education knowledge all of the right it doesn't come naturally um, sort of one final example, if you may, if you don't mind, one of my favorites. Uh, imagine a um, cannibal from some remote, long-lost island near New Guinea who is brought to New York for a first-time visit. This is his first exposure to civilization. He will understand that the ship that brought him to New York is a huge version of the hollowed-out log canoe his tribe used back on the island. Um, if we stopped at a New York street vendor and bought him a hot dog, he wouldn't recognize the hot dog, but watching what I did with mine, he'd straight away realize that some form of food similar to and obviously superior to the food he ate back on his island. You know what? I think he'd even understand that the robbers and muggers who threaten him on the dark streets of New York are merely a different form of the enemy tribe that he feared back on the island. Now, show him the Statue of Liberty. He's utterly bewildered. He simply lacks the capacity to understand its function. Right? How can he possibly figure out why France, you know, a, a sculptor in France, built this huge statue. It's not a god. It's not an idol. A symbol of French, American French. You're talking language. He doesn't get it. It's outside his ability to understand. Now, obviously, were he to invest the time and energy in educating himself in history, geography, international relations, and all sorts of other things, He'll obviously eventually come to understand the Statue of Liberty and its significance. But for now, it's unreachable. That is the understanding of spiritual awareness. And so, my dear friends, when you ask me, where is heaven? I said I would tell you. The answer is simple. There it is, right over there. Can't you see? It's as clear as could be. Right there in the fifth dimension. Spiritual reality. And that is as far as we're going to go. So visit the website at rabbidaniellappin.com uh, or pick up a copy of Buried Treasure on your Kindle at Amazon. Buried Treasure, Life Lessons from the Lord's Language by Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin. Uh, read about it on the website at rabbidaniellappin.com. At, at the website, you can subscribe to our mailing list. You can also be in touch with me. And you can also uh, join the Ask the Rabbi. Uh, once a week, we we pick a, a question that people send us on the Ask the Rabbi page of our website, and uh, we answer it, and uh, we send out 
a mailing on the answer. The most recent one, by the way, uh, was somebody wrote a very interesting letter, said, um, I'm sure that Dave Ramsey believes, Dave Ramsey, right, is a, a fantastic financial advisor, Financial Peace University, and a devout Christian and a very good friend of mine. I, I love him, respect him enormously. So the person says, I know you're friendly with Dave Ramsey, but um, he uh, he's a Christian. I'm sure he believes you're going to go to hell. You, you're not going to be able to go to heaven. Now, whether he believes that or not, I have no idea. We've never discussed it. So that wasn't the point. But the point was, uh, clearly, I have many wonderful Christian friends who probably do think that uh, because Jesus isn't a part of my spiritual reality, I am impeded from reaching heaven. Probably do. So this person said, how can you be a friend with somebody who has that belief about you? And uh, uh, Susan and I answered that question. I think based on the response we got to the answer, I think we answered it very well. You can also read the question and the answer on our website at rabbidaniellappin.com. You can also comment on it. Anyway, all of that at the website. My friends, until we are blessed to be together again next week for the first show of the year 2018, I wish you a week and indeed an entire year of good health and prosperity. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio.